So hello and uh, welcome to you all. Thank you for joining us this evening or this morning, or depending on where you're joining us from. My name is uh, Devin Ashford and I'm supporting this uh, evening talk as the Gaia House host. So first of all, I just want to say thank you so much to uh, Soketsu Norman Fisher, who's joined us uh, this evening from uh, from the United States. Uh, Norman's a, a poet and a Zen Buddhist priest. Uh, for many years, he taught at the San Francisco Zen Center and is currently the, the senior Dharma teacher there, as well as a founder of the and spiritual director of the Everyday Zen Foundation. Norman's written many books, uh, both as a poet and as a Zen priest. His latest poetry releases uh, very recently are Nature and There Was a Clattering As. Tonight's talk uh, and discussion will be based on his latest notes and reflections from a life in Zen called When You Greet Me, I Bow. And I'll post some details of that at the end if you'd like to get yourself a copy of that book. Uh, so without any more distraction from me, I'll hand you over to Norman. Thanks, Devin. Hi, everybody. Really nice to see all of you. I think I'm seeing Lucy from Tassajara, right, Lucy? Really nice to see you. Um, well, I'm really grateful to uh, Gaia House for inviting me to do this and, and uh, letting me see all of you. What I want to do tonight is uh, maybe for about a half an hour, just chat a little bit and read a little bit from actually my three new books. I'll, I'll, I'll just briefly introduce the poetry books in case you're interested in those, but mostly focus on the Dharma book. And then after that, uh, I thought it might be interesting to have uh, a, about a 10-minute discussion in, in breakout groups. Uh, and I'll give you some pointers for some ideas for that discussion. And then after that, uh, about 20 more minutes of interaction, if you have any thoughts, comments, questions uh, that I can respond to or not, uh, we do that. And so we'll all in all take about an hour. So here's the first book that uh, Devin mentioned. It's called Nature, and, I, and this is the cover of it. It looks that way in the front and that way in the back. I don't know what the color looks like on the screen, but it's a very weird color. And these are two photographs that I took myself at my house on a day in California when the sun never came up. Uh, it, was, it was like twilight all day long because um, it was a time when there were a lot of wild, wildfires all around the state and the air was so smoky that you, you were advised not to go outside and breathe the air and the sun never came up because uh, of the smoke. So uh, this book Nature is actually uh, a rewrite of Ralph Waldo Emerson's famous book-length essay called Nature. And uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, in his day, nature was understood as the eternal backdrop for human activity. Nature was never changing. It was beyond human agency. Spring, summer, winter, fall came always the same throughout the ages. Well, that astonishingly is no longer the case. I wonder what Ralph Waldo Emerson would think these days. So anyway, I improved on his essay or updated his essay for the current time and basically I followed along with it improvising in my own way. So um, I'm going to read you a very small part of this. 
poets do far better with far less, evoking preternatural experiences from syllables twitch, tiny pulsations within the soul. Here we find actual air, sun, mountains, countryside, city, politics, passion, the hero, the maiden, snatched from the world, lifted from page, swirling in ear. Poets unhook things from their fixedness, pivot in thought, spewing newness. They are heroically, if quietly, to look, to look at them, no one would know, spun by history and the timeless, addressing world with feeling, feeling with world, for without words, worlds and feelings press too forcefully and pierce. An ordinary person conforms thought to the things she proposes exist beyond it. Poets conform things, they know they do not exist otherwise, to thought. The one assumes the world is firm and, and given. The other knows there is no world outside the fluid, flexible, fungible, and prophetic cast of thought and word. The refractory world is ductile. Dust and stones are human. Imagination makes the world fully embraceable, placing it within the scope of feeling, reflection, and love. Shakespeare dissolves world and expression's solution. His imperial muse tosses fluid world about like a bauble floated from hand to hand. He props the whole of it behind any word that strikes his fancy at the moment, improvising wildly within his paper-thin plots. He visits out-of-the-way places, knits together the split apart, shows subtle spiritual connections plain. The magnitude of material things is relative. All objects shrink and expand when words churned in spirit rule. Thus in his sonnets, birdsong and flowers are the beloved's shadow. Time, which keeps her from him, is his chest. Suspicion, an ornament, joy, a box of Kleenex, a well-paved road, the curiosity that killed the cat, a jacket worn by a night watchman, and all the cumbersome packaging in which his order arrives, so much pulchritude of invention. Somewhere in all this, a crow is eating a power bar. So that's from Nature. And, and, and that one is probably available uh, online easily. And uh, there's a wonderful company in Berkeley called Small Press Distribution that only distributes small press poetry books. And, they, and they've got it, as do they have this other book. That, that, so that one came out in late March. This one came out in late April. The cover of this one is a painting by Kaz Tanahashi, the great calligrapher and Zen translator of Dogen. Uh, this one is called There Was a Clattering As, and it's my pandemic poem. It was, it was written entirely during the pandemic, about the pandemic, and all pandemics. And it's a very odd book. It's a collage of various texts that I chose, and I quote at length from these texts, and then I often bend the quotations. I alter them 
and mess them up and mix them up. So um, I'm going to read you a, a couple of pages because there's one section here I want to read for you and it's, it's a little longer than, than uh, maybe it should be, but I think you'll find it interesting. It's actually uh, a three-page history of pandemics. Epidemics become pandemics after having become endemic, lurking in the atmosphere, the soil, the soul, waiting, waiting to spring forth. So in this book, I'm actually treating a pandemic not only as a physical manifestation, but as actually a manifestation of the heart, the soul, and the culture. So lurking in the soil, the soul, waiting, waiting to spring forth. Smallpox was endemic, epidemic, and pandemic for 3,000 years, maybe, beginning when people first domesticated animals, coming from the animals, distempered by their natural resistance to domestication, i.e. having their genes messed with, but being unable to conceive of oppression or, or organize against it, produced this simple anomaly shared between themselves and the upright species as a sort of unexpected offering or homage. Egypt had it, Ramses V died of it, the Romans had it, Romans that is, the aggregation that spread economic opportunity, civilizing politeness and class rule, so that by the 15th century all Europe had it, 30% fatality rate, but 90% of children. Having a child a year, losing a child every other year, the lot of exhausted breeding women, the hard feelings persist. Parents would not name nor devote themselves completely to their children until after they'd survived the pox, not wanting to risk losing a designated and cherished loved one with a full identity, curtailment of identity, being the chiefest form of human self-protection. Pandemics produce their own demise. The more people get sick, the less they do eventually. The body politic adjusts temporarily and enough people recovered and with immunity, all others already dead, the disease disappears till in time it finds the opening to return in force not out of any malice, but in the natural way of things to go forward where they can to make more of themselves. When a virus finds virgin soil, a place inhabited by humans who have never experienced it, it has its way with them. So the peoples in the lands unknown to Europeans, tens of millions of whom succumbed to smallpox and the other innovative viruses in the so-called New World, clearing the land for occupation, destroying vast advanced empires, the Aztecs, Incas, etc., and creating the necessity for African slaves, since there were but few natives left or willing to be impressed as foreign labor. Foreign labor always necessary to do the backbreaking work that requires lack of identity. Foreign here meaning lacking identity in our terms.
1541 in Pelusium near Port Said in Egypt, first cases of Black Plague, then spreading west toward Alexandria, east toward Palestine, and so on. First fever, maybe mild, then the buboes, creepy black lumps in groin, under arms, all over body, and terrible suffering, the body capable when fending off attack of a range of terrible sensations that influence mind, language centers, causing delirium, lurid imaginings, sinking, ravaged, and all but unbearable sensations, images, and ideations. Hell then exists as an actual place one inhabits for an eternal space of time, vomiting blood, racked by convulsions, into the dimness and horror of a pestilential death. People tending the sick to witness what being human means under the worst possible conditions. The next year it struck Constantinople, capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, under rule of Justinian, who paid for the burial of the dead, 10,000 a day or so, they say. People who ventured out of their homes wore name tags, so that, that, that should they be struck dead in the street, their identities that connected them to social networks could be retained, even in death, for otherwise a corpse is just a corpse. Think of it. Every corpse must be attended to in one fashion or another. Death, for one, is a cleanup project for another, and for still others, a source of wonderment, grief, and lasting diminishment. For others, still, a source of income. After this, the empire struggled, difficult to find workers and soldiers, Wages and worker pride skyrocketed among the few left able-bodied so that the emperor was forced to pass decrees limiting the rise in wages and berating people for their shameful greed and selfishness and rejection of age-old traditions that define the relations between laborers and their employers. Revolts. Rome in 543, Britain 544, on it marched, each affected person a stone to tread on toward the next, a cobbled stairway to oblivion. Lasted till 750, a 300-year stroll. Then back again in 1347, killing every third European. After, in fall of that year, rat fleas carrying it entered Italy, always Italy, on a few ships from the Black Sea. When all the graves were full, trenches were excavated in the churchyards, bodies dumped by the hundreds. So when Nazis, a human plague, did this same thing 600 years later, it was a practice remembered. Stacked tier upon tier for efficiency like ship's cargo. All believed it to be the end of the world entirely as God had decreed and promised. And therefore, the Jews were assumed to be involved. Never mind that they too died along with the rest. They must have poisoned the wells. Convert or die. It was 50-50, and the stiff-necked among them were taken to the Jewish cemetery 
and burned alive. Valentine's Day, 1349, dismaying even the Pope. Same thing in Frankfurt, Mainz, and Cologne, those who could escape to Poland and Russia, which is why your Yiddish-speaking grandparents came from there. Yet the plague ended and returned. Ended and returned for a century and a half, causing great alterations variously in societies where it thrived, giving common people the energy in their dismay and horror to overcome oppression until things quieted down and the rational order of dominance of concept over body, power over love, once again asserted itself gradually, peacefully, or not. Cholera in the 19th and 20th centuries, SARS, MERS, AIDS, Ebola, COVID. So actually you could write a history of humanity that was only about uh, you know, plagues and pandemics. They've always been part of human civilization and they had enormous impacts on us. It'll be amazing to see what the impacts are now. And you know, uh, what I say at the end there about the rational order of things where concept dominates body and power dominates love, that has also been the human story. And Dharma is the countervailing force, right? Dharma in all its forms, religious practice, spirituality in all its forms, is that part of, you know, being human. That's the opposite of that. And so that's why I think, you know, these days, at this particular time on our planet, in our human history, we really need Dharma and all kinds of forms of spiritual practice, which bring out the side of us that's the opposite of that, where, where concept does not dominate uh, and uh, violence and power doesn't dominate, but rather love dominates. And the physical gratitude of being alive in a physical world becomes more powerful than concepts like money, which is a concept, right? So, that, so then that's this book. And, and uh, this is called When You Greet Me, I Bow. And the publication date for this book was a couple of days ago, just, just now out. And, and this one is, is available through the Shambhala website or anywhere online, probably. And, and they wanted to put my face on the cover, which I had big resistance to. So we made a, a compromise, half my face. <laughs> so uh, this book is um, a collection of 30 years of my essays about Dharma. And it's a, so that's a little different from teachings about Dharma. You know, an essay form is, is expressing something. It's thinking about Dharma and its impact in the world and its impact on us. Uh, so it's a little bit different from instructions for practicing Dharma. Many of my other books are instructions for practicing Dharma, but my essay is thinking about Dharma, my essays. And there's a companion volume to this, actually, uh, called Experience, Thinking, Writing, Language, and Religion. 
And that's a collection of my 30 years of essays that focus more on writing, thinking, and culture. And these are really about uh, aspects of Dharma. So uh, Cynthia Schrager, who is the editor of this book, and one of the members of our local Sangha in the Bay Area, San Francisco Air Bay Area, she um, gathered together all the essays that I had published. She hunted them down from here and there, and there were lots of them. And then she selected the ones that she thought were worth reprinting, and then she divided them into thematic categories, and she did a good job. I wouldn't have been able to do that, you know, but she, as a dispassionate reader, you know, was able to see within 30 years of my thinking and writing some themes, and so she divided into themes. And then she had this great idea. She said, Shambhala wants you to do some new writing, so what if you write notes from the standpoint of, you know, late... 2020, where you reflect on the essays in each section. So if you disagree with yourself from what you said years ago, you can say so. And, and if you want to update, you can update. So that was actually rather fun. I didn't have to write you know proper essays. I could just write informal notes. So that's why the book is called Notes and Reflections from a Life in Zen. So um, I'm going to read just a little bit from here, and, and mostly, hopefully, we'll discuss. So I'm going to read, actually, the very beginning of the notes. So th this was written, you know, recently. Notes on the first section of the book, and the first section of the book is called The Joy and Catastrophe of Relationship. Because that, turns out, is one of the themes that I've written a lot about, Dharma, as it, as it relates to uh, our relationships. So here's, here's what it says. I'll read you just about a page and a half or so. I began Zen practice some 50 years ago. And when I say 50, it says in parenthesis, question mark, question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point. Who can believe, you know, 50 years have gone by. I began Zen practice some 50 years ago as a callow, yet stubborn and arrogant student of literature, philosophy, and religion on a quest, not a spiritual quest, uh, but as I saw it, a truth quest. The reason I was so driven in that quest is that I was in great pain. Unlike so many people I have met over the years, I had no good reason for my pain. I had led a modest yet privileged life. My parents were decent people. They did not drink or rage. They did not abuse me in any way. They provided a roof and a food and a simple upbringing in our traditional family faith, Judaism. So no, I couldn't blame it on them. It was the times the horrible Vietnam War, which I was about to be drafted into, but I wasn't, as it turned out. It was fear of the world destroying atom bombs that during the Cold War we feared would be dropped at any minute, if not by the other guys, then by us. Also ruining my life uh, was the question of time and the question of death. 
which obsessed me. These things were all very personal to me and very desperate. And in that desperation, I stumbled on Zen, looking for, I suppose, something like metaphysical relief. So it's quite surprising that the opening section of this book, its bedrock, is about relationship. Because this is what I have discovered after many decades of Zen Buddhist practice, that the, that the religious life isn't about truth as much as it is about relationship. Or that perhaps truth and relationship are one and the same. In other words, from the standpoint of Zen practice, relationship doesn't mean what we normally think it does, boy meets girl, person meets person, parents and children, friends, relatives, associates, colleagues. It does mean all that, of course, but that as a vehicle for some truth beyond it. Relationship is not something that happens or doesn't happen in a life. It is life. It's life's truest truth. We live in relation to other human beings, of course, but how and at what level of depth? But we live also in relation to ourselves, to our thoughts and feelings, to our body, to our breath. We live in relation to the whole of the physical world. We pick things up, we put them down, we see the sky and sea, we hear the waves and birds, we taste and smell and touch and are touched. These things make us what we are. We are nothing without them. Understanding this, fully appreciating it as it's at its depth, goes to the heart of Zen practice. And none of this, as it turns out, is metaphysical or theoretical. It's exactly the opposite. It's being alive as best you can in the midst of whatever relation is occurring moment after moment as moment after moment of your life. Because yes, there is no time. Just the relation between mind and what it meets. A thought, a sensation, a person, a feeling, arising and ceasing in this now that we think of as the time of our life. But maybe it never happened. So that's the opening, uh, the, these notes about relationship go on. And I'll just, I'll stop with reading one, one more short part here. It's from the first essay. The title essay, When You Greet Me, I Bow. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a traditional Zen story. I'll just read you the story. One day, while Guishan was lying down, Yangshan came to see him. Oh, sorry. Wrong story. Long time... This is a Cancel that. That's, I tell two stories. This is, that's the wrong one. Uh, <clears throat> long time made rice cakes for a living. But when he met Zen priest Tianhuang, 
he was inspired to leave home and follow him. Satyan Wang said, Be my attendant. From now on, I will teach you the essential Dharma gate. So Longtan did that, and after a year, he said to him, When I arrived, you said you would teach me. But so far, nothing has happened. And Tianlong said, Tianhuang said, I've been teaching you all along. And Long said, Tan said, What? What have you been teaching me? And Tianhuang said, When you greet me, I bow. When I stand, you sit beside me. When you bring tea, I receive it from you. So why don't I, and there I've talked a lot of talk, and that's enough. And so maybe uh, Devin can put you into groups for a moment. And <clears throat> why don't you, uh, just before he does that, let's all just take a moment to take a breath or two. And while we're doing that, check inside. What impression do you have in this very moment from what all I've said and read? Whatever it is that strikes you as the main thing you heard that stays with you, let's breathe and discover what that is. And then when Devin puts us in the groups, uh, let's briefly, I think it'll be groups of three, let's briefly each one just say uh, what that thing was that struck you and, and what it was about that that seemed uh, noteworthy. And then each one can say, and then maybe there's a couple minutes to talk that over, and then we'll come back and continue the conversation all together. So this will be like maybe, let's say, Devin, maybe like 10 minutes total in the groups. And let's breathe now three breaths before he does that. So welcome back, everyone. I uh, hope you had some fruitful discussion in your small groups. Just wanted to mention that we're, we're recording the um, this uh, meeting this evening and would like to post the audio on uh, Dharma Seed, which is a publicly available um, internet resource. Before we before we do the questions, I, I forgot, I wanted to, I told you that the, the book is divided into um, four parts, four themes, and I forgot to tell you what they are, so I'll give you an idea of what the book, what the themes of the book. So just briefly, uh, part one, Buddha and Buddha with notes and, and on the joy and catastrophe of relationship. And that's, I read you from that part. Part two, form is emptiness. Notes on thinking, writing, and emptiness. Part three, east-west. Notes on cultural encounter. Because, uh, you know, Buddhism is an eastern religion and we have a very different culture, so how does that work? Part four, difference and dharma, notes on social engagement, the politics of dharma. It involves questions of, of violence and war and peace and ecological disaster, uh, identity politics, uh, and so on and so on. So those are the four sections. So uh, now, I hope you guys have things to say. It's not necessarily like questions. You don't have to have a question, but maybe a comment or anything you want to say. So... Uh, so I'm just wondering, it came up in our group, 
Uh, so it's for Norman. It's I don't know if it's a question, but relationships are the most important thing, and yet they're the most difficult thing for us, I think. So why is that, Norman? <laughs> well, uh, it's like somebody asking the Buddha, you know, why is there suffering? And, and the Buddha said, uh, who knows, but let's see if we can address it. You know, let's see if we can do something to make it better. So why, why is there uh, so much trouble in relationships? It's because, you know, I think I'm me and you think you're you. And, and I have my world and you have yours and I get threatened by yours or I need what I need and you get threatened by mine and you need what you need. So, of course, there's going to be always problems, sometimes humorous little ones, sometimes bigger ones, and sometimes like catastrophic collective problems, which cause, you know, deaths and all kinds of terrible catastrophes. So, I mean, Dharma is the, is the answer to that question, right? I mean, Buddha said, you know, uh, end of suffering path. So... Uh, while, and I think that, you know, realistically speaking, right, in, in Zen practice, this is the way we look at it, I think, or at least the way I look at it, it's not that we're going to, like, transcend being human beings and, and have no more problems with one another because we're so beyond everything that we just love everybody and we're perfect. Uh, God bless anybody who achieves that state, but... Uh, in in Zen practice, we're not. That's not what we're trying to do. Actually, what we're trying to do in Zen practice is be human beings, and 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 as such, we're going to maintain all of our issues and problems with one another. But instead, as Zen practitioners, we hope that instead of fully believing in those problems and fully allowing ourselves, as we often, as we always do, to be spun around by our desperate clinging to ourselves, we're going to understand that this suffering between us is something beautiful and something that can bring us closer together. So maybe we'll feel pain in our human relationships, but instead of building pain on top of that pain, we can feel the pain and build love from that pain. So I think that actually is possible. I think we can have far more harmonious human relationships. We could even have a culture in which conflict between us was something that we could deal with and we could have people who can help us deal with it. And we, and we could, so I, I think it's possible for us to eventually be harm, more harmonious than we ever have been, certainly for us individually. I know in my own case, I definitely have better relationships in my life than I had before. And, and I definitely have the much greater ability to cope with my human relationships than I had before, and practice has helped me in that. So I know it's really definitely possible. But yeah, human beings are basically, we're all crazy people, you know? I mean, it's kind of like, from a Buddhist perspective, the world is a madhouse full of crazy people doing crazy things. I mean, when you read the newspaper, from a dispassionate point of view, you would have to conclude that the world is full of crazy people, and especially the leaders of the world are crazy. When it seems to make sense, like, to bomb places, right? 
and knock down buildings on top of people's heads and destroy people in their houses, when that seems like a sensible, reasonable thing to do, you know you're living in a crazy world. And when people, you know, hate one another and then are eaten up alive by their own hatred, right? That's crazy. That's a, a lunatic only would do that. So we're all crazy. And, and to me, like, Buddhism is nothing other than simple human sanity. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for bringing that up. I actually think that's <clears throat> a really important and profound question because it's not only in your town, it's pretty much everywhere in the world now. Certainly yeah. the United States has the same problem exactly, you know, and people talk about it all the time. And it came up yesterday, and in, in, uh, I was giving another book event, and somebody also brought this up. And so here's what I think about it. Um, I think that it seems like uh, an artifact of uh, contemporary science and contemporary discourse in the humanities, along with the phenomenon of uh, the internet and mass communications in our time has made it so that the idea of facts as we used to understand them is no longer operating. <clears throat> so if you were to <clears throat> debate with a conspiracy theorist and present facts I can guarantee you that the conspiracy theorist person would also have their own set of facts mm. that come from their sources. Mm. And from your point of view that you might say, well, those are bogus facts, but they would say that from their point of view, your facts are bogus facts. And so this is where we are now. There are no longer uh, facts, objective facts, even though some people think there are. Probably everybody thinks there are, and yet they differ. And I remember the first time I noticed this. I, I, this was, it was in 1988. I'll never forget this. I was watching a debate, presidential debate in the United States between a Republican and a Democratic candidate. And they both made the opposite point of view about what was going on. And they both cited statistics and studies that said that the opposite things were true. But of course, since then, it's gotten far worse. So what does that mean? That means that it is absolutely fruitless, I think, to debate on that level of facts. Now, it makes sense for us all to follow the facts and gain knowledge from the sources that we consider to be reliable and to say to people who follow sources that we consider to be unreliable, to say, I actually think that my sources are more reliable than yours, but I understand you have yours. I believe mine are more reliable, so I follow this set of facts. But it's no use debating with them. I think what's useful is to say, how's your family? How are you doing in the pandemic? <clears throat> what's life like for you? Let's talk about stuff like that. Let's realize that you care about your family, I care about my family, you're scared, I'm scared, the future is uncertain, that's very disturbing, 
I feel that, you feel that. In other words, on this level, we're fighting with each other, and we're really upset with each other, because both sides not only feel that the other side has bad facts, but the other side somehow having those facts, just as you said a minute ago, is immoral. You know, they're hurting the, the world by listening to those facts. Both sides feel that. So we have to start talking about a little bit, two or three levels beneath that. I have this in my own family. I have in my own family <clears throat> that person you're a mad at. <clears throat> so happens that this person in my family who has those views um, is the person that when my parents were dying, because they live very far away from me, and I'm a Buddhist priest, I'm very busy with my communities, when my parents were dying, this relative of mine took care of them, because I didn't. And I feel bad about that, and grateful to him. So I know that he's not a bad person, you know? I know he actually cares about family and all these other things. And when I see myself getting activated by things he posts on Facebook or things he says, I take a deep breath and I say, let me heal myself and not get agitated by these things. It's an old habit to be addicted to these feelings. Let me let go of them. And I, and I, and I manage to let go of them and not be upset when he says all this crazy stuff. And we have a good relationship. We're in touch. But we don't talk about those facts. And we know that we have this big gap. We recognize it. But we also know that we love each other and we're, we have this, we're in the same family, we have the same grandparents, and so on and so on and so on. So that's what we have to be doing all around the world. And I really believe that little by little by little, when everybody calms down finally, the facts that we need to ensure our survival will eventually assert themselves and we will act on those facts that will help us to survive. Because you know what, it may be actually, I mean in a way, like the emptiness teachings actually say, you know, there is no truth. <laughs> everything is true. It's a Zen saying, everything is true, everything is false. So maybe we shouldn't get so agitated on that level, because now that is causing us a huge amount of wasted time. So I don't know if what I'm saying makes sense to you, but that's what I've concluded. I've thought about this a lot. I actually, in my, one of my other books, um, called uh, <clears throat> The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. I actually talk about this. I actually talk about the issue of alternate facts and conspiracy theories and, and how are we going to operate in a world. I talk about it in the context of the emptiness teachings and what the emptiness teachings have to tell us about how to live with our facts and non-facts and so on and so on and so on. So anyway, I, 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 feel, I feel for you. I, I mean, you know, we're having the same thing here. And I think, I actually feel like, uh, in the United States anyway, with our last presidential election, we've switched gears and we've turned down the volume. When you have a leader who wants to benefit from this conflict, then you can really turn it up. And we had that. Now, now we have a new temperature and a lower, lowering of the temperature. And I think when the temperature lowers, things just sort of simmer down little by little by little. I don't know. I mean, I, listen, I don't know what's going to happen 
and I don't know what is happening. Nobody knows what's happening, and nobody knows what's going to happen. But it feels that way to me, and I, and I hope that's true. In any case, we can do our practice, and our practice tells us to behave in something like what I'm telling you. And then we can be more happy ourselves, and then we can be more supportive of one another, and little by little we can get out of this crazy situation. But you know, sometimes, <clears throat> like when a person, like a regular human being, goes to the doctor, and they get uh, a drastic diagnosis of a condition that is terminal, they can freak out and start yelling at everybody and, and screaming and going crazy, you know, because they're so upset. I think that's the condition that we're in as a human species. We are really upset and scared about the future. And that's why we're saying and doing these really crazy things. So it's really understandable. Very sad, but understandable. And thank you for bringing up that superly important question. It's something we all have to think about. Thank you, thank you. And I, I guess, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm a long-winded person, and little answers take me a long time, and now we kind of ran out of time, right, Devin? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's sort of natural, right? A practice that starts out with all conditioned existence is suffering, you know, is bound to be seem uh, a little joyless because Buddhism certainly emphasizes suffering. So I, I, I understand what you mean. And it is true that uh, <clears throat> in my practice I've learned to be suspicious of. Uh, the kind of joy that we often call excitement or ebullience because I've noticed that um, usually it's followed by a dip that is more persistent and lower than the high of feeling thrilled. So I've learned not to trust that kind of joy because it has in it attachment, and the attachment will lead to suffering. So I noticed that. So, however, however, that when you, when you see that dynamic and you understand it and you learn how to um, situate yourself within it in your life, then emerges another kind of joy, which I would consider to be actual joy. I think that other kind of joy, I just won the lottery, you know, I won the prize, uh, you know, it's my wedding day. Um, there's another kind of joy that is quieter and actually more persistent, that lasts all the time or most of the time. In fact, paradoxically, that even can be there in times of suffering and trouble. You can still feel this joy. And it's the joy, I think, of recognizing that um, uh, this is an amazing world full of amazing people and that oneself is absolutely an amazement. You know, that you have a body, that you can breathe, 
that you like you open up your eyes you know what I mean and you can see something it's amazing the complexity and the beauty of our lives and so uh, it's even beautiful that I can feel grief for our Sangha member who just died a few weeks ago that we really one of our most beloved Sangha members just died and we're all like really sad about that you know and we can see the beauty and the joy in the sadness you know that we miss him is a beautiful thing that we're sorry and sad that we lost him is actually beautiful and, and even joyful in a way so in other words it's almost like we have to re-imagine what we think joy is and how it's situated within our lives and I actually think Dharma is a path of joy because if you don't if you think that joy means keeping suffering at bay joy is the opposite of suffering joy is the opposite of you know neutrality or bad stuff happening or bad mood so I've got to keep bad stuff and bad mood at bay and then I can have joy if you think that's joy that's just a recipe for suffering really maybe there's a little joy you know yes but then there's gonna be much more suffering more and more as time goes on right but if you think that joy is the delight of being alive and, and including everything that life has to offer then the Dharma is absolutely a path of joy I think that you know the Buddha I think if you read the early text it's true they are sober sounding you know and serious sounding and they don't seem like they're joyful but but if you read some of the Zen material that you read you know it's like actually funny and fun you know these people are obviously enjoying themselves with one another you know yeah. and, and for me my practice has definitely uh, given me a lot more joy I'm a lot more a joyful happy person for sure than I, than I was before I started practicing and that joy has increased every year of my life I would say even now when I have so many good reasons to be depressed and in despair I actually rationally speaking I should be in the depressed and in despair right because anybody who's reached my age they should be in despair because you know what are they thinking right they should be thinking oh my god you know how many years like one more year maybe I could I could enjoy health another week or two a year this is terrible I'm living in the middle of my body which is a catastrophe waiting to happen right but no I actually feel more happy than ever and I completely get it then I'm going to get sick and die soon. This is not lost on me, believe me. And yet I'm very happy. Doesn't make any sense other than that's what Dharma practice teaches me. So I think it is absolutely a path of joy. And, and uh, that's what it's about, finding joy in being alive and, and then sharing that joy with one another. So, thanks for the question. And I just would like to say as we close here, that I'm really happy to be here because I love hearing English speak people talk. I, I, I'm watching all the time now in the pandemic all of the British crime shows that they play on the BBC. 
I've watched every single episode of every single one of them, and I realize now that I'm watching them not because of the plot, because I want to hear Vera, Stanhope, talk. And that's all I need. And I want to hear, like, the guy on Shetland in the Scottish accent. I want to hear that guy talk. It is so great, you know, to hear them talk. That's all I, all I want, all the only reason I watch the show. So that's why I'm really happy to be here with all of you. And to, I was just having such a good time talking to Devin because he also talks like a British person. And, and, uh, and, and I'm hoping that one of these days I can come and visit uh, the Emerald Island and all of its parts and everything because I would love to just hang around and everybody's talking like that, right? And that's the only thing I'm hearing. I would love to do that. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful English, which is so different from the American English, which is very funky, you know? So, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much, Norman, for your, uh, introducing your books tonight and for taking these questions and lovely way to end on talking about the joy of a lifetime of practice. And uh, great, great, you can appreciate uh, the small contribution of, of uh, our English and, and related and British accents. <laughs> and as I say, in, in the chat in the chat uh, description, there's a, a link to if you want to buy one of uh, if you want to buy the uh, book that was the focus of tonight from Shambhala. I recommend you go to one of, to there or to, to some small independent retail if you can. And also, if you want to make a small, a, 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 as I say, a financial contribution to, to to Norman, there's a link there to do that also. Thank you, thank you all. Thank, thank you, you Norman. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. <laughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.